Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, once again, let's open our Bibles to the book of Amos. And we're studying, as you know, chapter by chapter. We come to chapter 8 today. Let's read the entire chapter 8 of Amos. Scripture says, Thus says the Lord, Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come to my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. Many will be the corpses. In every place they will cast them forth in silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger. And to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed I will never forget any of their deeds. Because of this will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn. Indeed all of it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day declares the Lord God that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. And I will turn your festivals into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like bitter day. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. They will not find it. And that day the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. The title of the message today, Sad Songs in Silence. Now you know that Amos is divided into two parts. The first part are the sermons of Amos. Amos was a prophet, he was a preacher. And he proclaimed a message of judgment, not only to Israel, but to the nations surrounding Israel. But in chapter seven, eight, and nine, the scene shifts. And Amos is given by the Lord a series of visions. And there's a formula. God will show him a vision and he'll ask him, what do you see? And Amos, the faithful prophet, always says exactly what he sees. Remember in chapter 7, the first vision was of locusts. Locusts were those pests that would come and devour uh, the produce of the land. But it's even worse than that because God says he's going to send locusts after the king's mowings. That is, after the king had taken the first part of the produce as his taxes, then the people had to live on what was left. So if the locusts came after that, there would be nothing for anyone to eat. The economy would be ruined and worst of all, the people would starve to death. And so when Amos saw this vision of coming judgment, he interceded on behalf of the people. He prayed and said, Lord, please don't let this happen. 
Our land is so small, they won't be able to stand. It will utterly destroy us. God heard the prayers of the prophet and he relented. He did not send the locust. And then he gave him another vision. This time a vision of fire. And the fire consumed the farmland, again consumed the crops. The effect was the same as the locust. The people had nothing to eat. And they were going to starve to death. And again the prophet Amos interceded and said, Lord, don't do this thing. And again the Lord heard the prophet's prayers. He relented. And then chapter 7 verse 8, the third vision is of a plumb line. And this is what it says. Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. I will spare them no longer. Those are some bone chilling words. This time Amos does not intercede because he understands that the Lord's proclamation is final. It's too late. Judgment is upon the people. It's amazing what you remember from your childhood. I was standing there this morning singing those hymns. I remembered an old deacon in a church my dad pastored years ago. I haven't thought of in years. But I remembered every time he would pray either to start the service or the benediction, he would always pray something to this effect. He said, Lord, if there's a lost person in this room today, would you save them before it's everlasting too late? Everlasting too late. That is the condition that Israel finds themselves in here in chapter 8. They have received the Lord's benefits, His blessings, and yet they have refused to repent of their own sinfulness. They have not heeded the warnings of the prophets such as Amos that have been sent, and now it's everlasting too late. Judgment is about to fall. And so that brings us to our fourth vision, and that is the vision of ripened or fruit, a basket of summer fruit. Look at verse 1, chapter 8. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Well, I said in chapter 7, the Lord said, I will spare them no longer. It's bone chilling. It's even worse in chapter 8 because he adds to that phrase another, the end has come. So when God says the end has come, that tells us that the opportunity to repent has passed. Sometimes I hear people say that God's grace is infinite. And I understand what they mean by that. In a way they're right. That is, there's no sin that he can't forgive, that the blood of Jesus is insufficient to forgive, we could say. But it's not true to say that the opportunity of grace, the day of grace, is forever. It's not. There's a window of opportunity to respond to God's graciousness, but at some point that window will close. He says, I will spare them no longer. The implication is that he has been sparing them, and he has. They have deserved the judgment long before it came, and yet he's slow to anger, merciful, benevolent, giving them opportunity after opportunity to repent. And now he gives this vision of a basket of summer fruit. How strange. These are the dog days of summer, and the dog's hot these days. Most of us who planted gardens in the springtime have harvested anything there was to harvest, and if you're like mine, everything's burned up. Fruit has been harvested and canned for storage. And, but, but this word summer fruit in the Hebrew literally means the end. It's the end of the year. They didn't have the, the means of storing things as we did. And so you either eat it now or it's to be thrown out. It would rot. 
And so God takes something that is neutral, a basket of summer fruit, and even pleasant, if you like, fruit, and he declares something terrible. He says, your sin is ripened to its fullest. He can't bear even one more day. And now the time for judgment is come. The nation is ripe for judgment and it will surely come. Now, you know that Amos was a farmer by vocation and his was an agrarian economy. So it's not surprising that God would use agricultural images to express his intentions to judge Israel. And so uh, he does. Now, then in verse 3, chapter 8, look at it. He describes the extent and the severity of the judgment. He says, the songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. Many will be the corpses. In every place they will cast them forth in silence. It's all-encompassing and it's capital. That is, people are going to die. You recall that even at the apex of their sinfulness, the people of God the Jews never stopped pretending to love and worship God. That was true of Jesus' day. Even as they were nailing Jesus to the cross, they were giving the pretense of worship. Remember, they had to take him down from the cross to keep the ceremony. And so um, the hypocrisy is writ large. They would go to their appointed places in Amos Day. They would offer their sacrifice. They would keep the feast days and the fast days. And yet their heart was far from the Lord. And oftentimes when they would go up to these places of worship, they were singing little ditties, little cute songs, having no sense that God was displeased with them at all. But God said, suddenly these ditties, these songs of joy are going to be turned to lamentations and even mournful wailings. You, you know why. He says it, because the corpses will be many. He's about to send death and destruction. He said, well, is this hyperbole? Is this exaggeration? No, it happened just like it says. In, in the year 721 BC, the Assyrians led by King Sennacherib swooped down and they took over the land. They killed many. They took the rest into captivity. They set up puppet governors. And for all practical purposes, the northern kingdom ceased to exist, never to exist again. Look what he says in verse 14. They will fall and not rise again. That's exactly what happened just a few years after Amos saw this vision. And the destruction is going to be so widespread and intense that they can't even keep up the wailing. Remember he says, your joyful songs are gonna be turned to wailings. Now, now, if you've ever seen a funeral in the Middle East, you know it's quite a production. In fact, they often even hire professional mourners, people that really have good voices, who can wail and scream, and, and they do this all the way in the processional till the, the service is over. But his point is, that there are going to be so many bodies to dispose of that their voices are going to become exhausted and their wailings are going to be replaced by silence. That's the title of the sermons today, Sad Songs to Silence. So much destruction that it causes their mouth to close. And it happened. The question becomes not if it happened. We know it did historically as why? What sins of the people of God were so egregious, so heinous, that God determined to send such all-encompassing judgment? 
Well, he tells us, it's our second point, rotten practices. Look at verse four. Hear this, you who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller, the shekel bigger, and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals that we may sell refuse of the wheat. Now you find four charges against God's people right there in those few verses. First of all, he says they trample the needy. That is they run over the most vulnerable of society to expand their own personal kingdom and net worth. Now if you read the Bible in context, you'll find that the needy, the oppressed, the outcast, the vulnerable, such as the widow and the orphan, have a very special place in the heart of God. And there are repeated warnings in the Bible for those who would do harm to the vulnerable and weak. In fact, Jesus said, if a person would do harm to one of these little ones, it would be better than a millstone tied around his neck and he was drowned in the depths of the ocean. That's how seriously the Lord takes it. But he says the people were trampling the needy because of their own greed. Of course, we know that rotten practices begin with a rotten heart. Jesus said so. And he exposes their heart and their way of thinking in verse 5. Remember, they were still carrying on the outward appearance of ritual and ceremony and religion. But he says, they are saying in their heart, will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain? So this was a religious festival in which they had to close their businesses. And rather than focusing their attention on the glory of God as these festivals were intended to do, they were saying, when's this going to be over so I can go back to making money? That doesn't happen anymore, does it? You've never been in church thinking about something else, the ball game or what you're going to do next week or how you're going to make money. Now listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with making money. It's how they made money. Their money had become their God. They couldn't focus for 10 minutes and worship on Jehovah for thinking about how to make money. Not only how to make money, but how to make money illegally and unethically. And he tells us how they did that. He says, they buy the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger. Very simply, it means that they were taking a measurement and saying, this is a full bushel, but it wasn't a full bushel. And they were selling it for more than a bushel should have been sold for. Now, does that sound familiar? Buying less and paying more? That's exactly what they were doing. The people who suffered the most from this, of course, were the poor. And so God's angry with the dishonest scale. And it says they buy the helpless for money. That's their third offense. And so what would happen is these poor people had to, to go into debt just to buy their daily bread because they were being cheated. And when they couldn't pay their bill at the end of the month, they were being sold into slavery, he says, for the cost of a pair of sandals. So the second time in the book of Amos, we've seen that same phrase. A pair of sandals was a nominal amount, but the people could not pay because they had nothing. And they were willing to sell their own countrymen into slavery for something as slight as the cost of a pair of sandals. And then the fourth one really is sickening. He says, they're selling the refuse as wheat. The Hebrew literally says the sweepings for wheat. And so what the merchant would do is he would sell all the grain. And at the end of the day, he would have some stalks and some trash and he'd sweep that up, put it in a sack and sell it to a poor person as grain. Selling them trash as food. And God is 
livid with this. Well, people have not changed much in the 2,800 years since uh, this was written. We still have to pass laws today to make sure that uh, we have fair scales, don't we? Next time you go to the gas station to fill up your car, notice as you're pumping your gas, there's a little sticker on the corner of the pump that it says, this pump inspected by the state of Texas on such and such date. You know why they do that? It's because people are inherently good. (laughs) That's not it. They have to have those pumps inspected because people are not inherently good. And left to our own devices, there are unscrupulous businessmen who will change those pumps and give you less than you paid for, just as they were doing in his day. It reminds me of an old story from the rural South, and I suspect there's a hint of truth in it somewhere, though I I don't know that the story is actually true. The story is told, this was back when every little town had a little general store, before the days of the super Walmarts. And so if you were going to buy your groceries, you'd go in on a Saturday and, and they didn't have the walk-in refrigerators. And so if you wanted to buy meat, uh, they, they would take a big tub of, uh, and put ice in it in the morning and they would slaughter their chickens and they would put them in the tub of ice and then you could buy them through the day. Well, there was this one particularly um, crooked merchant in this little town. And uh, at the end of the day, one of the prominent women in town came in to buy chickens for the next day. She was going to have the preacher over for dinner Sunday, and she needed to buy a chicken. And so uh, she told the merchant, said, I need, I I think, about a six-pound chicken. Now, here's what she didn't know. He was down to his last chicken, and he knew it only weighed about five pounds. And so he didn't want her to know he was down to his last chicken, so he reached down in the tub of ice water behind the counter and made a big commotion as if he were finding just the right one, even though there was only one in there. And he finally pulled up the one chicken and he put it up and he lightly put his finger on the scale until it said six pounds, even though he, he knew it only said five. And she said, well, you know what? That preacher eats a lot. He was Baptist. And she said, you know, I, I probably need a, a seven pound chicken. And so he reaches down, he puts the chicken back in the tub, he stirs around the water again, he pulls that same chicken back up, puts it on the scale, and he holds his finger down a little longer until it said seven pounds. And she said, I'll take it. And she said, by the way, he eats a whole lot. I think I'll take both of those chickens. (laughs) Well, the merchant was caught in a sin. And we laugh at a foolish merchant getting caught, but I assure you, as God saw the widespread dishonesty of his people, he was not amused. He was angry, and rightly so. Our third point on your outline this morning is righteous indignation. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians that as Christians we are to be angry and sin not. A lot of Christians I know have have a wrong understanding of anger that all anger is inherently sinful. It is not. We know that because on more than one occasion in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus got very angry and we know he was not sinful. He was angry about the right things. He was angry about the things that made God the Father angry. And it is not only right, it is appropriate that God's people are angry about the things that make God the Father angry. There are things in this culture that should make us angry. Righteous indignation. Verse 7 describes this righteous indignation. 
The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. Because of this, will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in the broad daylight. I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. Now hear this, I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. The people of God remembered the greatest time of judgment they'd ever heard of was when God judged the nation of Egypt, right? When their ancestors were down there in Egyptian bondage, they were mistreated. They cried out to God for vindication. He heard their cries. He sent Moses, he sent the 10 plagues and they heard the stories of the wailing and the mourning from the Egyptian people. You remember the 10th plague God sent the death angel and he told his people to apply the blood of a lamb to the doorpost and lintel of the house. But wherever the blood was not applied, the firstborn son of the house died. And there arose the next morning a wailing and a weeping that we can only imagine. God says that's what it's going to be like here. Not just Egypt, not just the pagans, not just the enemies of God's people. I'm going to send that kind of mourning Here, he says, I swear it by the pride of Jacob. The pride of Jacob was the city of Samaria. The thing that they boasted in, it was fortified. They thought it was impenetrable. But God says, I swear by this, what you value the most, this will happen. And he gives us some key phrases to tell us why. He says, I will never forget any of their deeds. Now that could be taken in in two ways. If you do a favor for someone that is particularly appreciated. You you, you pull them out of a tough situation. They may say to you, I'll never forget this. In other words, I'm beholding to you forever. I'm going to pay you back in some way. This is not the case here. When God says, I'll never forget their deeds. He's saying, I'm never going to forget their sin. What a tragedy. You talk about bone chilling. The Bible says in the New Testament that it's appointed to every man to die and then to be judged by God. The Bible describes a great white throne of judgment where all of the dead are going to be resurrected and will stand before God and will be judged based upon our deeds. Here's what the Bible says about our deeds. They all fall short. Romans 3, 23, we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And so if we're to be judged based on our life, none of us will stand. But the glorious good news of the gospel is this. For those who know the Lord, we don't have to fear that judgment because Jesus has already taken that judgment for us on the cross, right? In fact, the Bible says, blessed is man whose sins are forgiven. The Bible indicates that our sins are taken as far as the east is from the west. And we love to say drowned in the sea of God's forgetfulness and he puts up no fishing signs, right? He's not going to bring those sins up against those who are born again. But for those who stubbornly and steadfastly refuse to repent, they will be judged. And all that was hidden is going to be brought out into the open one day. God will remember every. He says that to his people. I'm never going to forget. 
Again, that tells us a sobering truth. The opportunity to repent is not infinite. There will come a day when it is everlasting too late. He says the land will quake. In the springtime of the year, the floodwaters of the Nile would, would, would cause the river to go up and down, up and down. The people never knew from one day to the other what to expect out of life. He says that's what it's going to be like in Israel. A total upheaval. There's going to be chaos in the land. And it's going to be all-encompassing. He says everyone will mourn. And then he describes that mourning like the mourning of an only son. The 20 years that I've been a pastor, I can tell you there is no sadness like the sadness of parents who bury a child, no matter what their age. Parents who live to bury their children are heartbroken like none other. I am named for my father's oldest brother, Keith, who died before I was born in the late 1950s in a car accident. My grandmother, his mother, lived to be to her mid-90s. And as far as I know, she grieved his death to the day she died, every day. Now, she had two other living sons. Can you imagine? He says the morning is going to be like for an only son. That's tragic in any Day, but, but in those days, the only son held the key to the economic prosperity of the whole family. If you lost an only son, the family name would not continue. All would be lost, and it was an incredible tragedy. And he says that's going to be the kind of mourning, not just for one family, but for every family in the nation of Israel. This is unspeakable suffering. And those are some bad things that the Lord has laid out, but it's not the worst the worst is yet to come. Look at verse 11. He says, behold, days are coming. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or thirst for water. Now he's already said, look, there's been times, remember back in chapters one and two, where I sent famine to get your attention. There were times when you got hungry and you had to go from city to city to find food and water. But he says, there's a famine coming, but it's not for food or water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Men and women, I submit to you the very worst thing that can happen to any of God's people is that he ceases to speak to them. That they can no longer hear his voice. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, when he describes the cyclical nature of human depravity, how it is spiraling downward and downward, worse and worse, to the point where verse 24 says, he turned them over to a reprobate mind. I take from that he just took his hands off. He's no longer going to stop the progression of their depravity, and he's going to allow their sin to go to its natural conclusion. Our culture is in that situation today. There's a famine from hearing the word of the Lord. And the only thing I believe that is keeping our own country and our own culture from going to that level of depravity is the presence of God's people, the church, the salt and the light. And we are increasingly in the minority, but there are still God's people in the land. 
Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The salt's job is to preserve, to, to, to prevent the culture from being as rotten as it possibly could be. And though the culture doesn't appreciate it, and if they had their druthers, they'd get rid of the church altogether. They have no idea. The only thing holding the world together is the presence of Christians. He says, people will stagger from sea to sea, from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and they will not find it. Does that frighten you? That you could want to hear a word from the Lord and not be able to. See, their condition was just the opposite. They didn't want to hear a word from the Lord and yet they did. God kept sending prophets. God said, ultimately, I'm going to give you what you want. You don't want to hear from me? You won't hear from me. Now, in a sense, that's metaphorical because we know God is everywhere, right? He has not literally left them. I hear people say sometimes that they, they define hell as the absence of God's presence. Not at all. David says, if I make my bed in hell, what? Thou are there. If he's omnipresent, he's, he's everywhere. It's just that he's not revealing himself to the people. So it's as if he's not there. How frightening, how bone chilling, how cold. People said, we don't want to hear from you. God says, okay. I said that's metaphorical, but in a sense, it's very literal. Because if you'll turn over just a few pages in your Bible, you'll come to a, a blank page, a white page in your Bible that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. And that blank page represents literally centuries of silence where God did not send a prophet, where the people did whatever they wanted to do. And it was not until John the Baptist shows up on the scene in the New Testament, they finally hear another word from the Lord. I don't know about you, but I, I need to hear from the Lord, don't you? We, we need to, to hear from him. And so what's the message today for, for God's people? The message is, is simply this. The worst thing that could possibly happen to us is, is we no longer hear from the Lord. And if we don't want to hear from the Lord, the chances are we want. The other message is this. For that generation of Israelites, that deacon I mentioned earlier was right. It is everlasting too late. They, they live to see the judgment that God predicted Scores of them died, thousands of them taken into captivity. Their nation was lost forever. But for this generation today, some sitting in this very room who don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the good news that it is not too late yet. Theologians say we live now in the day of grace, the church age. The window of opportunity is open. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here today and the Holy Spirit of God is convicting your heart of sin and judgment and righteousness, don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. Run to the cross of Jesus. As long as there's a heartbeat in your chest and air in your lung, there's an opportunity to be saved. The window is open, but dear friends, the window is closing quickly. And just as in the days of Amos, there will come a day when the window will be shut tight 
and it will be everlasting too late. Don't delay. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon the name of the Lord. Receive him as Lord and Savior. A few years ago, we had a conference here on the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And I had the two leading Baptist theologians sitting on the stage and I asked them both the same question, define the word atonement. And they both said in unison, a covering. This is what the Lord Jesus has done for you on the cross. Jesus died for sinners. And on the day of judgment, if you have received him, if you've received his gift of salvation by faith, you will be judged not upon what you have done, because if you were, none of us could stand. We will be judged on what Jesus has done on the cross as his blood covers our sins. What about you? Are your sins covered by the blood of Jesus? Are you still in your sins? Those are really the only two categories of people in the world, the lost and the saved. I call upon you today to trust Jesus be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word, and it is an urgent word. And Lord, it is a sad word because when it came, it was too late. The warnings had come and gone. God's forbearance and patience had come to an end, and now his judgment would fall. The book of Romans tells us that these things were written for our benefit. Lord, that we would learn from them and not make the same mistake of the Israelites. And Father, I suspect in a room full of people this large that there's at least one or two people who don't know you as Lord and Savior. Maybe they've been trusting in their own goodness. Maybe they think they can negotiate with you out of judgment. But the truth is, Father, without Jesus, we're all hopeless and helpless. Lord, I pray now that your spirit would convict hearts of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. And Father, I pray for that person who does not know Christ that uh, before this service is over, Lord, that they would bow their knee to his lordship. They would accept his invitation to come and follow him, that they would repent of sins, confess their sinfulness, and turn to Jesus before it's everlasting too late. Lord, I thank you for many hundreds in this room whose sins have been atoned for and covered by the blood of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness. Lord, when we read these books of judgment, we are reminded of the greatness of our salvation and the greatness of your love with which you loved us. We thank you for Jesus who died in our place. We give glory to him and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.